I don't know if you've been in a situation. I imagine you have. You're a harried parent. Kids tugging at you and fussing. They've been at each other all day. The laundry's not done. Dinner's in process. A friend calls in crisis. At least you can look over to your bouncing four-month-old baby boy to uh, say, all right, well, everything is okay over there. Unless you look a little closer. And just in case you're missing it, yeah. Ever had one of those days? I'm done. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I've been trying to connect with uh, Niffer for, I don't know, a couple months maybe. I wanted to talk to her about some things, including the opportunity to share um, her testimony with you guys and just was only able recently to connect. And uh, what a testimony. Uh, the title of today's message is, Where is God When I've Had Enough? And I just think her story, we didn't plan it this way. I didn't even know what she was going to share. But listening to her, I said, God's timing is here because this is a woman who said, enough is enough. I'm done. I'm finished. I'm out of here. Right? Uh, we say, God, how much more? I'm done. Well, today we're going to look at a man in a similar overwhelming situation, the prophet Elijah. And more importantly, we are going to look at where God is when that man has had enough. And so uh, before we get into this, I'd just like to stop again and just offer a word of prayer uh, to the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning many of us certainly being able to identify with the sentiment that enough is enough, that we've had enough, we are beyond ourselves, uh, we are beyond our resources, and so we come to you this morning knowing that we're looking at more than words in a book, we're looking at your word to us for always and for now, and I trust that there is something here for all of us today, wherever we are in our journey with you, and I pray that you would enable us to listen for your voice as we read about the journey and as we look in more detail about the journey of our brother Elijah. I pray that you, your spirit would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would take my words and let them be your words and your truth that would change us to conform us to your image. And we thank you for your great faithfulness to us and trust that what we do this morning would contribute to that end. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get into today's lesson, we need to do a little background. Elijah is one of the better known Old Testament prophets, well known for many miracles that he performed as a prophet of God. These included praying that the rain would stop, and three and a half years later, praying that it would start, and it did. Uh, making a flour jug and a jar of oil that a, a widow had and never become empty during time of famine. Every time she poured it out, it filled up again and uh, then later raising that widow's son from the dead. Elijah served during the reign of King Ahab, known as one of the most evil kings of Israel. There was a period of time where the quality of a king was compared to whether it was better, worse, or the same as Ahab. Elijah's ministry involved seeking to turn the heart of the people back to God to turn the heart of the people back to God from the common people all the way up to the king. Well, just prior to today's passage is perhaps one of the biggest miracles that Elijah was involved in, and we see that in 1 Kings 18. 
I invite you to open your Bibles so that we can follow along here. Uh, we're going to be teaching out of 1 Kings 19 today, but I direct your attention to 1 Kings 18 for this background. So uh, Elijah arranges a meeting with Ahab at God's request. And in verse 17 of chapter 18, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The Baals were false gods that the people worshipped. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel was the queen uh, married to Ahab and uh, the only real distinguishing feature of Jezebel is that she was more evil than Ahab as we read in the scriptures if that's possible to think. Elijah has Ahab collect the prophets of the false god Baal and Asherah to have a contest between them and the contest is this. Each of us are going to build an altar. We're going to take a bull and we're going to kill that bull, cut it up for a sacrifice. And instead of offering, instead of putting that on fire, which is what they would normally do, they would light a fire under the sacrifice as, a, as an offering to their God. Instead of lighting the fire, we're going to pray to our God and whichever God answers by fire, that is going to be the true God. Well, everybody thought that was a wonderful idea to see this, what this is going to happen. And so Elijah says, you go first. So the prophets of Baal go first. And as you read through the story in 1 Kings 18, they pray, they chant, they dance around the altar, they pray louder, they cut themselves with sharp instruments, so blood is coming out on them. And they do this from morning to evening. No answer. No fire. Nothing. Well, then it's Elijah's turn. He builds the altar and arranges the bull for the sacrifice. He puts the stones, the wood, the bull. But before he starts praying, he, takes, he asks them to take four jugs of water and pour it over everything. Good fire starter, right? Then he says, do it again. So they pour four jugs of water over everything again. And then he says, do it again. They pour four jugs of water over everything. By this time, he had built a trench around the altar. The water is filling the trench. He then prays a simple prayer. If you look in verse 38, there's a summary of that. Uh, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. With this demonstration of God's great power and Elijah's role as a prophet of God, the people respond by acknowledging that Jehovah is God. The Lord, he is God. It's not Baal is God, it's the Lord, Jehovah, is God. Elijah takes the 450 prophets and the false prophets and executes them. And what an awesome and convincing display of God's power and Baal's powerlessness. The Lord, he is truly God. So with that in mind, with that background, let us read today's passage and see what happens with Elijah. So I'm going to read 1 Kings 19, verses 1 to 18. 
And again, with that as a background, let's just read and see what happens. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal in every mouth." that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to organize our thoughts through today's passage in four sections that I've entitled Running, Refreshing, Revealing, and Refocusing. Running, Refreshing, Revealing, and Refocusing. Let's look at the first part in verses 1 to 3. Not everyone saw the outcome of this contest as a great thing. Ahab tells his wife, Queen Jezebel, what happened and um, as an understatement, she is not amused. She is not amused. She does not respond by repenting and saying, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, and then choose to worship God. No, she promises Elijah on oath to kill him by tomorrow. And her oath is made to her gods, which had just lost the contest. 
She promises, if you look there, so may the gods do to me, in verse 2, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So the scripture reports that Elijah is afraid for his life and runs away. He's afraid for his life and runs away. Jezreel is in the north part of Israel. Beersheba is in the south. He got about as far away as he could and still be in Israel. It's about 100 miles distance. If you look at it, it's an interesting response, isn't it? Seeing what he had already seen God do. He had just seen God do this tremendous miracle of calling down fire. Certainly, God could take care of Jezebel. And we're going to get some insight into why he ran as we move further into the story. But I don't think we should be too hard on him because I think we've been there, right? We've been in places where life is hard and where life is difficult and we just feel like running away. But Elijah is running from Jezebel who threatened to kill him by the gods that had just been defeated by this great contest that Elijah had set up. Well, let's look to refreshing in verses 4 to 8. It says there, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He left his servant in Beersheba and went another day's journey, who knows, 15, 20, 25 miles further into the wilderness. And he prays a simple prayer. In verse 4, it says, He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. In other words, I've had enough. I'm done, depleted, nothing left, out of strength, no more room for one more thing. I can't take it anymore. I gave it all I've got. And now I'm done. Not only that, he says, despite my best efforts, I've not accomplished any more than those who went before me. I'm no better than my father's. I'm no good, ineffective, insignificant, unappreciated, and despised. I'm ready to quit. I want to die and be done with it. Again, you don't have to show your hand. Anybody ever been there? I'm sure many of us have been there. God, just take me now. Some of us even maybe to the point of wanting to help along the process a little bit because of how difficult life has become. I've had enough. I can't go one more step. After pouring out his heart, he lies down and goes to sleep. Exhausted physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And again, I ask, have you ever been there? But what we want to look at is how does God respond to this? How does God respond to Elijah? First, what does God not do? God does not come to him with ridicule, rejection, scolding, commanding, dealing harshly, minimizing his feeling. Oh, Elijah, it's not that bad. Remember who I am. We see none of that in God's connection with Elijah. God rather sends an angel. He sends an angel, a special direct messenger of God, who touches him, touches him, doesn't hit him, touches him, wakes him up and feeds him with warm, fresh bread, just baked on a rock and a jug of water. Elijah eats and drinks, goes back to sleep, and again the angel comes to him, arouses him to provide food and water. What's going on here? God meets him in his moment of greatest weakness, with gentleness and tender care, meeting very practical needs, including the very physical needs of food and sleep. 
Elijah was obviously very exhausted and needed food and sleep. And notice an important thing about how God, how God often answers our prayers. He did not give Elijah what Elijah asked for, but he gave him what he really needed. He didn't give Elijah what Elijah really asked for, but he gave him what he really needed. Elijah asked to die and be done. God says, no, this is what you really need. God's purpose was to strengthen Elijah for the journey ahead, including a physical preparation. And I just, I am so struck by this, that God cared more for Elijah as a person than he did for Elijah's performance. He cared more for Elijah as a person than he cared about Elijah's performance. He didn't come and say, Elijah, get back there where I told you and be doing the things I told you to do. He took care of Elijah as a person more than he cared about Elijah's performance. There's another thing to notice about Elijah here, though. Yes, he's at the end of himself. He's at the end of his resources. And yes, he is more afraid of Jezebel at that moment than he is trusting in God. He's running from Jezebel. But he has not turned his back on God. He has not turned his back on God. He cries out to God in his pain, right? He says, oh, Lord, take my life. Oh, Lord, I am no better than my father's. It is enough, oh, Lord. He, he's pursuing God. His initial statement is a prayer to God, expressing his pain and his desire to be done with life and its trials. And then in verse 8, look what it does. He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. He goes to Horeb. What is Horeb? You may know Horeb as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the mount of God, the mountain of God. Mount Sinai is the place where God met Moses in the burning bush. Mount Sinai is the place where God came down on the mountain to meet the people after rescuing them from Egypt. This is where God called the nation of Israel and met with them as his people and gave them his promises as well as the Ten Commandments. This is Mount Sinai is where God gave them the Ten Commandments and the law. Elijah may be running from Jezebel, but he is running towards God. He may be running from Jezebel, but he is running towards God. Physically revived, Elijah pursues God, goes back to where he knows God is to be found. And I think there's a lesson there for us. When we are at the end of ourselves, God invites us to pursue him by going to where we know he is to be found. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Elijah was running here we see that God is refreshing him, giving him sleep, food, water, and encouragement as he pursues God. Well, what about the next section, verses 9 to 14, revealing? Well, he goes from Beersheba, or this place in the wilderness, to now to Mount Sinai, which is about 300 miles over the course of these 40 days from Beersheba to Mount Sinai. And it says here that Elijah stayed in a cave, verse 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And God comes to him with a question. Now, you remember that from last week when we talked about Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that God had said they were not to eat. And one of the first things they did was they hid from God. And God did what? He pursued them. He said, Adam, where are you? Here, he comes to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? This is not a question looking for information. God knows. This is a question looking for authentic, honest relationship. 
It's a question of compassion, not condemnation. It's an invitation by God for Elijah to pour out his heart, to reveal his deepest fears and anxieties. What are you doing here, Elijah? He's giving opportunity for Elijah to pour out his heart directly to God himself. And Elijah's answer, in a very real way, puts the meat on the bones of his earlier statement. Remember, he said, it's enough. It's enough. Well, now he fills in that it's enough. If you look in verse 10, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He expands on that it is enough. In, basic three, in basically three areas. He says, first of all, I have been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I have given my life to tell your people the truth about you, about the error of their ways, desiring that they turn back to you, the one true God. Number two, in spite of that, the people who should honor you have turned from your promises, have refused to come to you in worship and repentance, and have killed those who dared to speak to them about you. They had already killed many of the prophets of Israel. And number three, and now they're trying to kill me. I'm the only one that's left out of this whole, this whole group of prophets, and they're trying to kill me now. And if they get me, there's nobody left. There's nobody else who will love you and speak for you. And here we get a picture of why Elijah was at the end of himself. He had been completely dedicated to do, doing what God had called him to do, and he has nothing to show for it except heartache, failure, threats. He's feeling that his life has been hopeless and wasted. I've had enough. I'm done. Well, after God gives Elijah the opportunity to reveal what's in his heart, God now wants to reveal to Elijah something about himself. And if you look in verses 11 and 12, God says, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So he invites Elijah just to stand there and see what's coming next. And it says, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. It's amazing demonstrations of power that we are seeing here as God passes before Elijah. Can you imagine a wind? This is not an earthquake breaking rocks. This is a wind breaking rocks. It's not just a strong wind. It's not just a great wind. It's a great and strong wind. The author writes here, this is a wind violent enough to be breaking rocks into pieces. And if that wasn't enough, after that is an earthquake and after that is a fire, but each time it says, but the Lord was not in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. That doesn't mean God wasn't causing them. It doesn't mean that this isn't part of, what, who God, of who God is. We saw Elijah not too long before this had witnessed the fire of God coming down from heaven. It's not that God can't do that. But this is not how God was going to connect with Elijah in his brokenness. God was not going to connect with Elijah in his brokenness through the wind and the earthquake and the fire. Because what does it say? And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Some translations say that low whisper is a gentle blowing or a gentle whisper, a still small voice. 
a thin silence. Well, when you think about what's going on here, how do we respond to these two different displays? If right now a violent wind came through and the windows were breaking and the ceiling was falling in and an earthquake was rattling the building and fire started in the back, large swaths of destruction, what would be our response? Fear, we would run away. We would probably be yelling, screaming to one another to get out of here. This is not a quiet thing. We would run away. We would hide. We would seek refuge away from those things in fear, anxiety, and perhaps loud shouts of distress. But when there's a whisper, what do we do when there's a whisper? We listen. But we don't just listen. We get quiet. Because even here, the sounds, the, the noises in the room got quiet when I started whispering. But what's the other thing we do when we, when we are listening to someone whisper? We lean in. We get closer. God comes to him in a whisper so that Elijah becomes quiet. And so he moves closer to God to hear. In verse 13, that's exactly what it says. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. His spirit is now quieted because God came to him in this whisper and he's moving closer to God. He's leaning in to be able to hear what God is trying to tell him. This is very personal. God is connecting with him in a very intimate level. God was revealing himself to Elijah as the one who comes to his children in gentleness and quietness, offering peace and security. And then once more, God asks the same question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And then Elijah gives, interestingly, the exact same answer. What does that tell you? I think in those 40 days from Beersheba to Mount Sinai, he had a lot of time to practice what he was going to tell God. Have you ever done that? Well, when I see God, this is what I'm going to tell him. And you've said it so many times, it's memorized. You could do it in your sleep. right? I think that's what's happening here. This is a well-practiced response on Elijah's part because it's word for word. So when we're at the end of ourselves and questioning the life that God has given us, don't we often live in fear that God's going to come at us with a heavy hand and we forget that he comes to his children with the sound of a gentle whisper? William Smith, the author of the book Caught Off Guard, on which this series is loosely based, says this, Isn't it good to know that God is not too big to be gentle? Isn't it good to know that God is not too big to be gentle. Think of trying to move something up here and calling in a excavator to do so, a highway excavator. Do you think that excavator would be very gentle? Not likely. God is infinitely bigger than anything that we can do, and yet he is able to come to our level and deal with us with gentleness. So running, refreshing, revealing, how about refocusing? We see this in verses 15 to 18. After taking care of Elijah, meeting his physical needs, drawing Elijah into a deeper relationship with himself, causing him to lean in, to listen, God now gives Elijah three specific tasks, sending him back with a renewed vision 
and renewed purpose. He is to, a, he says, go in verse 15, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Syria, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And unbeknownst to Elijah, as Jehu is anointed king over Israel, he will be the one who will ultimately execute Jezebel. God says, I got this taken care of. You're worried about Jezebel? I got Jezebel covered. It's going to be okay. But look what he does next, his last thing in verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He says, oh, and one more thing, Elijah. You're not alone. You're not alone. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. I have my people, 7,000 of them. God did not give him a pink slip, did not fire him, did not throw him aside, say, okay, you're running away, you want to quit, you want to die, I'm going to find somebody else. No, he takes care of him, re-energizes him, reveals himself to him, and now gives him a refocus, gives him a renewed vision of who he, God, is and what it is that he wants Elijah to be doing. He reassured Elijah and us that he is in charge and has a plan. He is still in control. Despite the noisy threats of the Jezebels of this world, God is still in control. He will bring justice in due time. He will not discard us. He will not leave us alone. And he will listen and respond to the honest cries of our heart. And he will include us in the working out of his plan. He had a plan, and he's saying, Elijah, I'm going to incorporate you into the outworking of my plan. So where is God when I've had enough? As we are running, God is refreshing, revealing himself to us and refocusing. And how do we know that God will do all of this for us? Well, because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we see here in 1 Kings. There are many places we could go in the New Testament, but one place in particular that I think is relevant is Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. This is Jesus' invitation, just as it was God's invitation to Elijah. This is Jesus' invitation to us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That word lowly, part of the, the meaning there means that he is accessible. Jesus is accessible. He's not distant. He's not far off. Just as he was accessible to Elijah, Jesus is accessible. Whether a believer or an unbeliever today, Jesus' invitation is you come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Well, how do we accept his invitation to come? And this is also the answer to the question of when we are running from something, how do we run to God? We do it the same way that Elijah did. And I'll take them in the order that they came in, in Elijah's case. We speak to God in prayer. We speak. Elijah's first words were a prayer to God. We can honestly pour out our hearts to him. We can come to him. We don't have to run from him. 
There may be things in life that we're running from, but we don't need to run from God. We need to run to him, and we can do so in prayer without fear of rejection. I love Psalm 62, 8. It says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. You can pour out your heart. You can tell God the honest things in your heart, the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the anger. God, where were you when this happened? Pour all of that out. God is a refuge for us. He's a safe place for us to go. So we accept Jesus' invitation to come by coming in prayer. We also accept the invitation by listening for the word of the Lord. And we see that in the Bible. This is where we find the truth about who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised. And then we need to look for God's people. We may feel alone, but we're not alone. We're not alone. We have one another. Hebrews 10, 23 to 24 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. God calls us to meet together. That's why we meet here on Sunday mornings, because we are filling out God's provision for us. This is where we are going to encourage one another and hear from the Lord together. This is the place where we are to remind one another of who God is and help us to maintain our focus through our words, our songs, our prayers, and our fellowship with one another, in which we encourage one another and pray for one another. I hope when we're done here, you don't just run out, but you connect with somebody because who knows what kind of encouragement you may receive or you may be able to give. And all this happens both collectively as we meet here in the larger group, but also uh, not just here on Sundays, but as we meet individually or in smaller groups. All of this is necessary and have their place. This collective meeting where we all come together and the smaller groups. So when I've had enough, I've been there many times. When I've had enough, this passage would instruct us that God is enough. When I've had enough, God is enough. When I'm at the end of myself, God gives me himself. Another quote from William Smith from the book, people who feel like quitting need to be surprised by a God who never does. People who feel like quitting need to be surprised by a God who never does. There's a hymn called, He Giveth More Grace. Verse 2 of that hymn says, When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. People who feel like quitting need to be surprised by a God who never does. Let's close this time in prayer. Father, we thank you for this story of your working in the life of our brother Elijah. So much like us, 
As James says later, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, running away from this great fear after seeing you so powerfully at work in his life and the life of the nation, and yet he's running towards you, and you meet him. You meet him. You refresh him. You reveal yourself to him, and you refocus him. And Lord, I pray that we would experience that as well, that we would not see you as someone coming at us with the strong, violent wind and the earthquake and the fire, but you, we would see you as the one who comes to us with the sound of a gentle whisper. And I pray, as we read today, that we may live in that surprise that people who feel like quitting need to be surprised by a God who never does. May we continually be surprised at your persevering faithfulness to us. You're reaching out to us in your love and grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.